Good morning. And uh, it's lovely to see all of you over there in the temple and present in Zoom. I thought about transporting myself into the stars with my virtual background, but we'll save that for another time. Uh, but um, it was kind of nice to think about floating up there in the stars. So here I am, things change, COVID comes knocking, and so I, I join in this way. Can you hear me okay? And so Just I join. Okay. We have some new people coming, so let's get settled before we continue. Okay, thank you, teacher. <coughs> Are there any chairs available? One here. Have a chair in front. Are there Christians being used here? That's Trisha. And there's also a chair inside. If somebody could come forward to that. Welcome back to our Cotanto picnic. Coming to us from about 50 yards away, I think. Thank you. Thank you. So I was, I was saying, you know, COVID has, has knocked on the door and um, I also have noticed much joy and gratitude for this body and mind. And um, also want to say thank you very much to my teacher, Galen Roshi, for your steady and wise guidance and this opportunity to make this offering. Thank you very much. Again, thank you all for, for being here. And I hope what you hear encourages you in some way in your practice. Uh, if, uh, the, if the need to cough arises, I may go off video and microphone briefly, so no worries. I'll return. So just sit and breathe and uh, enjoy your life. So, so as I'm navigating through this somewhat of an unexpected haze, I uh, appreciate and am, and am grateful for 
these unseen and ununderstood body systems that are communicating with, with each other. And they're communicating with each other to meet something else that's, you know, swirling around inside. And, you know, right now, this body is moving differently. It's moving slowly and deliberately and in a way that I am not in control of. It's just what it wants to do. It's just what it needs to do. And, you know, I, I confess that I've resisted that and I've pulled against it physically and, and mentally at times the last couple of days. And in that, there's this, there's this um, beautiful glimpse of, oh, there's a little greed in there, Vicki. There's, there's some, um, there's some self-centeredness in that, in that resistance and that, that pulling away or, um, pushing forward and just noticing my mistake of really wholeheartedly, um, offering loving kindness, offering, uh, equanimity to what's arising and, you know, to, to offer and practice allowing this physical and mental state to have its place, to have its space with dignity and to not be silenced, uh, to be in a welcoming relationship with it. And, and then I'll, I'll, I keep turning the question, well, what, what do I do next? How do, how do I, how do we practice with, with this inevitability? of suffering when sometimes we are piling more pain and more problems on top of it. I want to share with you um, a story from the Pali Canon and an ancient, uh, many, many stories uh, recorded many hundreds of years after the Buddha's passing, but many wonderful teaching stories. And some of you may have heard this story, uh, but it's called the two arrows or darts. So as in many of these stories, you know, the, the Buddha's hanging out with his, his monks. And um, I'm going to start uh, reading the, the sutta. I've left the pronoun he and him in there um, just for ease of reading. And it's also helpful sometimes to change those uh, when I'm reading through these stories to she or her or they or them. But just so you know, I'm going to leave those in as I read this translation. <clears throat> Monks, as an, un as an uninstructed, run-of-the-mill person feels feelings of pleasure, feelings of pain, feelings of neither pleasure nor pain. A well-instructed disciple of the Buddha also feels feelings of pleasure, feelings of pain, feelings of neither pleasure nor pain. So the Buddha says, so what's the difference? What's the distinguishing factor? And he says, what distinguishing factor is there between? He asked this question to the monks. What distinguishing factor is there between? the well-instructed disciple of Buddha and the uninstructed run-of-the-mill person. So what's the difference? Buddha's asking, and the monk said, well, Buddha, um, 
you know, we really want to hear from you. You're our root teacher. You're our guide. And it would be good if the Buddha himself uh, shared the meaning of this statement. Uh, and hearing it from you, Buddha, will remember it. And then the Buddha says, okay, in that case, monks, listen and pay close attention. I will speak. As you say, Buddha, the monks responded. And then the Buddha goes on to talk about these two different people or practices. And he says, when touched with a feeling of pain, the uninstructed run-of-the-mill person sorrows, grieves, and laments, beats his breast, becomes distraught. So he feels two pains, one physical and mental, just as if they're just as just as if they were to shoot a man with an arrow and right afterward were to shoot him with another one so that he would feel the pains of two arrows in the same way when touched with a feeling of pain the the uninstructed run-of-the-mill person sorrows grieves and laments beats his breast becomes distraught so he feels two pains physical and mental as he is touched by that painful feeling he is resistant any resistance obsession with regard to that painful feeling obsesses him touched by that painful feeling he delights in sensual pleasure why is that said the buddha because the uninstructed run-of-the-mill person does not discern any escape or any path from the painful feeling aside from sensual pleasure. As he is delighting in sensual pleasure, any passion, obsession with regard to that feeling of pleasure obsesses him. Well, why does it, why does it obsess him? Because he does, and the Buddha says, because he does not discern as it actually is present, the origination and the passing away and the path from that feeling. Sensing a feeling of pleasure, he senses it as though joined. So there's this stickiness that's, that's coming up for this run-of-the-mill person. Sensing a feeling of pleasure, he senses it as though joined with it. Sensing a feeling of pain, he senses it as though joined with it. Sensing a feeling of neither pleasure nor pain, he senses it as though joined with it. This is called an uninstructed, run-of-the-mill person joined with birth, aging, and death, with sorrows, lamentations, pains, distresses, and despairs. He is joined, I tell you, with suffering and stress. Now, the Buddha goes on, now the well-instructed disciple of the Buddha, when touched with a feeling of pain, does not sorrow, grieve, or lament, does not beat his breast or become distraught. So he feels one pain, physical but not mental. Just as, just as if they were to shoot a man with an arrow and right afterward did not shoot him with another one, so that he would feel the pain of only one arrow. In the same way, when touched with a feeling of pain, the well-instructed disciple of Buddha does not sorrow, grieve, or lament, does not beat his breast or become distraught. He feels one pain. As he is touched by that painful feeling, he is not resistant. 
No resistance, obsession with regard to that painful feeling obsesses him. Touched by that painful feeling, he does not delight in sensual pleasure. Why is that? Because the well-instructed disciple of the Buddha discerns a path from painful feeling, aside from sensual pleasure. As he is not delighting in sensual pleasure, no passion, obsession with regard to that feeling of pleasure obsesses him. He discerns, as it actually is present, the origination passing away and escape from that feeling. As he discerns the origination and passing away, no ignorance or obsession with regard to that feeling obsesses him. Sensing a feeling of pleasure, he senses it disjoined from it. So there's no stickiness, there's no sticking, there's no adding that extra arrow. Sensing a feeling of pain, he senses it disjoined from it. Sensing a feeling of neither pleasure nor pain, he senses it disjoined from it. This is called a well-instructed disciple of Buddha, disjoined from birth, aging, and death, from sorrows, lamentations, pains, distresses, and despairs. He is disjoined, I tell you, from suffering and stress. This is the difference. This, the distinction. This, the distinguishing factor between the well-instructed disciple of Buddha and the uninstructed run-of-the-mill person. I hope as you were thinking of these two beings described, that you know that you're both of them. That, you know, I'm just this run-of-the-mill person. I'll always be this run-of-the- that's me. That can be that can be a tendency, but we're both. And when we notice the pain of both arrows and are caught by resistance or grasping or stickiness, we're kind of dipping into this habit of certainty. That's the way I'm I'm turning it right now. You know, this habit of grasping for certainty with stories, with my thoughts, <clears throat> with my perceptions. Oh, okay. I know how things are. Not only do I know how things are, I know how I know who I am and I know who you are and I can wrap myself up in this knowing and this habit of certainty in a way to to control the uncontrollable. But what happens when we practice to take off that covering? We allow this spaciousness to be more porous. This is our practice. And I think this is also what Suzuki Roshi is encouraging us to do, to lose our balance with our habits of grasping, with our habits of certainty and knowing. And I'll share a short excerpt from Zen Mind, Beginner's Mind. This is in, in the section about control. To live in the realm of Buddha nature means to die as a small being, moment after moment. When we lose our balance, we die, but at the same time, we also develop ourselves, we grow. Whatever we see is changing, losing its balance. The reason everything looks beautiful is because it is out of balance, but its background is always in perfect harmony. <clears throat> this is how everything exists in the realm of Buddha nature losing its balance against a background of perfect balance. So if you see things without realizing the background of Buddha nature, everything appears to be in the form of suffering. 
but if you understand the background of existence, you realize that suffering itself is how we live and how we extend our life. Again, but if you understand the background of existence, you realize that suffering itself is how we live and how we extend our life. And turning this, you know, what comes up for me is, yeah, life is a big deal and it's passing. You know, the great generosity of Suzuki Roshi's practice can remind us of this river of refuge that's not, not that it, it, it can contain those darts. It can contain those, those darts that we throw in. It's wide enough and spacious enough to, contr- to contain those darts that we add, those darts that are flavored with greed or aversion or our delusion those darts that are dipped in my habit of certainty. And this river of refuge, it it includes our bodhisattva practice of of generosity and morality and patience and this heroic perseverance and concentration and, and wisdom, these six paramitas. These rivers, this spaciousness of that water, those are our dharma darts. And, and, and Dharma words to allow to flow in also without creating another dart of certainty. And the, and the story of the two arrows and the two darts, I think of this as really um, turning towards the first noble truth. You know, the, the Buddha did not say that we wouldn't have any arrows. There's that, there's, there's, there's the arrow, there is suffering. And, you know, not pulling away from that, not pushing it away, but again, allowing that place and spaciousness for it not to be silenced. You know, the Buddha's way is to meet our challenges as our life day after day, forever. Sometimes I I notice I'm kind of taking the backward approach you know, if I achieve this quality, if I can really uh, master generosity and patience and, and compassion, then I will not suffer. Again, I don't think this is the Buddhist teaching. He did not teach that there would never be an arrow at all. It is, it is, there is suffering. We have, we have teachings and ways to respond to it. Generosity doesn't need me to master it. Compassion doesn't need me to master it. It's just flowing. And a lot of the time, I'm not aware of it. And there are times that I am dipping into that. But again, day after day, forever and ever. So we practice as best we can. We practice as best we can with that, that single arrow that's present, that will come, that does exist in many ways internally externally, globally, systemically, day after day. Life's a big deal. And to share the feeling of being alive with the mountains and trees, our sangha, our community, the pebbles, and to share the feelings we have for being alive with everything, and to share in the feeling that everything is extending to us. I'm currently listening to this um, audiobook, which I highly recommend. Some of you may have listened to it or read it. It's called um, Braiding Sweetgrass by Robin Wall Kimmerer. 
and um, I'm, re- you know, the audio book for me, it's in her, it's in her voice. So it's like sitting beside her and listening to all of these, these stories. She's not only a plant scientist, but she's also a member of the Potawatomi tribe, part of the bear clan and eagle clan. And she's written this beautiful, in Braiding Sweetgrass, she's written this beautiful scientific and poetic book that is filled, uh, in my experience, and, and it, of these wonderful stories of our true relationship with everything and the mysteriousness that is still there. I'm going to share just a little bit from her writing in the, from the chapter, The Gift of Strawberries. I'm a plant scientist and I want to be clear, but I am also a poet and the world speaks to me in metaphor. When I speak of the gift of berries, I do not mean that Frigeria virginiana has been up all night making a present just for me, strategizing to find exactly what I'd like on a summer morning. So far as we know, that does not happen. But as a scientist, I am well aware of how little we do know. The plant has, in fact, been up all night assembling little packets of sugar and seeds and fragrance and color because it because when it does so, its evolutionary fitness is increased. When it is successful in enticing an animal such as me to disperse its fruit, its genes for making yumminess are passed on to ensuing generations with a higher frequency than those of the plant whose berries were inferior. The berries made by the plant shape the behaviors of the dispersers and have adaptive consequences. What I mean, of course, is that our human relationship with strawberries is transformed by our choice choice of perspective. It is human perception that makes the world a gift. When we view the world this way, strawberries and humans alike are transformed. The relationship of gratitude and reciprocity thus developed can increase the evolutionary fitness of both plant and animal. A species and a culture that treat the natural world with respect and reciprocity will surely pass on genes to ensuing generations with a higher frequency than the people who destroy it. The stories we choose to shape our behaviors have adaptive consequences. In those childhood fields, waiting for strawberries to ripen, I used to eat the sour white ones, sometimes out of hunger, but mostly from impatience. I knew the long-term results of my short-term greed, but I took them anyway. Fortunately, our capacity for self-restraint grows and develops like the berries beneath the leaves, so I learned to wait a little. I remember lying on my back in the fields watching the clouds go by and rolling over to check the berries every few minutes when I was young. I thought the change might happen that fast. Now I am old and I know that transformation is slow. A great longing is upon us to live again in a world made of gifts. I can sense it coming like the fragrance of ripening strawberries right on the breeze. So the gifts of the strawberries appear in in everything. 
if we allow our practice to help us welcome and see and notice and be aware and pay attention, to be very grateful to have this limited body. And even in the, the stitches of the robes that some, some of you have sewn, there's suffering in those stitches. There's that arrow. It's part of your life. And we continue to turn toward and sit beside and caring for <clears throat> and tending to and asking what's here and letting that question just fall. We can have great joy in this limited body and mind. I can often and do often exert a lot of energy in throwing extra darts and in naming my problems, naming those arrows with great certainty and, and, and holding on to them. I can also call up joyful arrows and darts. I can allow those moments of joy not to be missed being kind to myself, continuing to encourage myself. Before I close, some of you may need to, to leave after the talk, before question and discussion. And I want to offer a Dharma dart, words of encouragement, maybe. Um, maybe it's joy, maybe it's laughter, maybe it's an eye roll or two. So you're invited to partake or not, and um, I hope you choose that Dharma dart that brings you some joy and maybe you want to pass it on to someone else later. Maybe it offers an unexpected moment of ease. For those of you on, in Zoom, I will share with you a picture of those Dharma darts and just allow your eyes to find one. And again, whatever arises, is whatever arises, an eye roll, a smile, encouragement, whatever that is, that's fine. Again, thank you all very, very much. And uh, let us all continue to encourage ourselves and each other uh, to take care of this very special place that we're in, moment after moment, forever. Thank you.